Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasts. Why do we have laws that dictate things like how much water we can use, but yet they won't protect us from evil? This is Tiffany, the host of Crime Connections, and today I am here with Ballette Buchanan, who is the author of Fighting for Justice, Religious Fraud, Mental Illness, and the Collapse of Law and Order, which is pretty much for anybody who's dealt with abuse, not only from a perpetrator, but also from the system. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. This is so important. Yeah, it really is something that affects everybody now because we're having such a breakdown of law and order everywhere, some places worse than others, um, but it really is a pervasive problem crossing all gender, crossing race, crossing political party affiliations, crossing everything. There's so many people who are being affected by it, rich and poor alike. Oh, yeah. I mean, crime does not discriminate. It doesn't care how old you are, what color you are, what neighborhood you live in. It, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's it's uh, pretty bad. And, you know, when it happens, I there's so many people, and I have to say for even myself way long ago, because um, in my case, it's my brother who has been breaking the law. You quickly find out that you call the authorities, of course, you make the reports, you do everything, and then you find how utterly broken and corrupt the system can be. We were told by both state and federal authorities um, when they admitted, yes, my brother's breaking the law, but we're not going to put out the money. There are bigger crimes out there. It's like, well, how big does a crime have to be? And what's the message that's being sent to people, both to the victims and to the criminal? basically the message being sent to the criminal is have at it, had a great time because we're not going to get in your way. And the message sent to the victim is you're on your own and don't even think about retaliating or trying to get any justice because then we'll go after you. Yeah. You know, it's, I've talked to so many other people who again, got that rather disturbing eye opening experience when something happened to them. When my husband and I testified in Connecticut to try to get some stronger laws enforced, specifically against stalking, since that was one of the crimes my brother was committing against me. I had an arrest warrant against him for harassment, but we were trying to strengthen the stalking laws as other states had done. And this was several years ago before we left Connecticut. We left Connecticut about 10 years ago. Um, This was a few years before that. And we got to meet some other victims. And one in particular, her disabled son was being stalked by a group of people, one of whom had sexually assaulted this young man who was mentally disabled. Apparently, he'd been doing a little bit of volunteer work in a fire department. And um, one of the other, either a volunteer or one of the people who had been hired there, I don't know what the situation was, started messing with him. And he was cognizant enough to tell his mother about it. She tried to get the authorities after this guy. This guy had been convicted already for molesting children. And... um, she couldn't get anywhere. She could not get anywhere. And with the stalking, at one point, they tried to kidnap her disabled son off the, the porch that he would you know, sit out there in the morning and stuff. And she was inside keeping an eye on him. But And she noticed his car drove up. And they lived on kind of a, a quiet road. And um, she noticed these people getting out of the car and moving quickly toward her son. She got right out the door. And they you know, turned around and hightailed it. She wrote down license plate numbers and everything. And like with our situation, the police told us, we're trying to do our jobs and we want to see, in my case, my brother arrested. And we had the arrest warrant out on him. We were trying to get him extradited for more serious crimes because he actually committed um, death threats against us. But we were told time and time again that the state's attorneys, which is like other states, district attorneys, simply would not enforce the law. And we had sit downs with our... um, our legislative aide who went to some of these meetings with the state's attorney and tried to reason with them to say, look, 
you know, this is in everybody's best interest. You you see the rap sheet that my brother has. You see the history that he has. You see the posts that he's writing online. You see the problems that we're having. You would not want this happening to you. And I'm sure every single judge sitting on in this county's court would not want this happening to them. Our own representative chewed out the chief state's attorney by telling him if this were happening to our governor, he would have been arrested on both state and federal charges. So, you know, you got to be connected, I guess. You got to have the right last name. You got to have the right party affiliation, whatever it is, to try to get the laws enforced. And uh, yeah, um, (laughs) it's very frustrating. It's very eye opening. Um, And the more we talk to other attorneys, it was actually a civil rights attorney in Connecticut who encouraged me to write a book about our experiences because she said that you, first of all, are not alone and you are going through something that other people have actually gone through worse. And she said there is a real problem of court corruption in this country that we need to get addressed and they need to hear from victims. They can hear from lawyers all they want to, but they need to hear from the victims. And so she really encouraged me to write about our experience. And I did went through other attorneys to review it and review the websites, everything. And I have to say in so doing, and this is where I encourage other victims of crime is to get your voice out there. In doing so, and getting this information out about my brother, who is a limited-purpose public figure, he claims to be a ministry leader and uh, a business leader, photographer. So he's putting himself out there into the public eye. And as so many attorneys have told us, once they do that, they're open to public scrutiny. These websites in the book have actually helped to silence him and have also helped to warn other people who were believing him, and even some of them were joining in with him and harassing us, stalking us. Once they found out the truth of who he was and what he was up to, they turned on him. And so it has worked to silence him to some degree. You know, I think we're always going to have to be vigilant. And and each case is different. I mean, you know, there are my brother, yes, he is dangerous. He has guns. He has severe mental health issues, apparently. But uh, I do encourage victims speak up because one of the things that people who do these crimes want is to crush your spirit and shut you up. And you can't let them do that. And you've got to do it right. And I, you know, we consulted with so many attorneys and most of them the majority of them, it was a free one-hour consultation. And a lot more attorneys are becoming aware of these problems and are trying to get them addressed. Um, We're still working with our legislators to push forward even better laws. We worked with them back in 2018 to get um, some better laws enforced, um, enacted actually, and then enforced. And we were able to use those laws to help us. Um, We're hoping that it helped other victims as well. But yeah, boy, and you know, one of the things that should be criminal is the abuse of the court system to file civil lawsuits. As you probably have read a little bit about my background, my brother filed nine separate lawsuits. He did it without an attorney. It's called pro se or self-represented. And thankfully, there are more laws being passed because this is an abuse of our, our court system. And unfortunately, a newer generation of judges, they allow these cases to go forward. On the face of it, you read them at first page. They are ape crap crazy. <laughs> they're, they're making claims that have no reality. And that's a lot of what he filed. And a, an older generation of judges, and we've spoken to a lot of good judges who still do this. They see these things coming across. They can smell them a mile away. Their court clerks hand them off to them and say, basically, get a load of this one. They're not even given a docket number. You know, they just say, throw it out. This is we're not going to allow this person to abuse the court system this way and weaponize it against somebody that they're targeting, either stalking or just harassing in one way or another. Unfortunately, a lot of the judges that it went across in three states, state and federal court, they just let them fly through. And it really is a denigration of the court system. Judges need to be held accountable for this. And we've been speaking and working with our legislators, and they're saying absolutely, because they're hearing it from their constituents in different counties, 
different states. And so thankfully, some laws have been passed to kind of tighten this up. But uh, in, in two of the nine lawsuits he filed, he tried, he, he filed in probate court, he tried to exhume our mother, not our father, and they're both buried in the same plot. Um, he tried to exhume my mother's body, our mother's body, and take possession of it. That's how insane and the extent to which they will go. And it's not just the one brother. He's the, kind of the leader of the, my three other brothers. Um, they all have police records and mental health issues and everything else. And it kind of bleeds over into so many questions have been asked. Well, where did this come from? You know, what were your parents like? And well, my parents didn't beat up on each other. They didn't have alcohol problems, drug problems, but they had relatives who did. And, you know, I go into my book about nature versus nurture. And, you know, certainly my parents were not perfect. Uh, they both really had issues with depression. And I think they did the best they could, but it was pretty overwhelming. And even I'm the, the youngest. My brothers, my four older brothers were born in the 50s. You know, there wasn't a lot of mental health available for really much of anybody, never mind children. But they really started early on exhibiting the problems of basic, basically pathological behavior. They, they really lacked empathy um, toward other people. They seemed to enjoy inflicting pain or watching other people in pain. These are early symptoms. And I, you know, I've talked with psychiatrists and psychologists, you know, child development people, and they are now, and I've read articles about it, they are now coming out with where does the origins of this come from? And they're identifying certain characteristics that some children exhibit early on that are strong indicators of truly psychopathic behavior later on. You know, you then combine the problems with alcoholism and drug use in with my brother's problems. And it's just a real cauldron of evil. <laughs> there's no other way to put it. I mean, it's just uh, very disturbing. And then there's just, I, I go into my book about the history of why we don't have a mental health system. And of course that bleeds over into the whole issue of gun control and, and you know, how, who can get guns and who can't. And, you know, I'm an advocate of gun rights, but I kind of wish we had the same system that like Switzerland has where you can get a gun, but you have to go through a bunch of reference and checkpoints basically to see, are you mentally capable of handling a gun, of owning a gun? Do you have any underlying mental health problems that would cause you to use this as a weapon? You know, bottom line of it is you can outlaw guns all you want to. Mentally, very mentally ill people, severely mentally ill people are going to use knives. They're going to use automobiles. They're going to use their bare hands. They're going to use whatever they can get their hands on in order to do damage. It's a very, very difficult issue because many people don't understand the mental health problems that are in this country. And the fact that we don't have a true working mental health system is you get legislators who really need to be better informed about the problems with this. And it, I bring it out in my book. It's very, very lacking in compassion when you have severely mentally ill people who truly cannot take care of themselves and they're committing all these crimes. And you cannot get help for them. I've talked with lawyers about what could we do? You, you know, we've shown them like a snapshot of all the things that my brother, this one particular brother has done. And they said, you know what? We can't get the judges on board with this because the legislators also, they don't, they don't have a, a strong commitment law. You cannot permanently commit somebody until they murder you. I mean, we'd be told that by attorneys. The only way we can get him permanent mental health treatment is if he murders you. And he said, unfortunately, I've had clients where that happens. I know, isn't that ridiculous? And it, and this is, you know, it bleeds over to why we have so many problems in our society. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, you hit on so many things. It's crazy. And I have been preaching all of this with my podcast, my nonprofit, all of it. Mm -hmm. All this usually starts somewhere around childhood or it's generational trauma. You know, it's left untreated. You see the signs, the hurting animals, they're, you know, it's little things in the beginning, but they turn into big things. As soon as fantasies start coming in, mm -hmm. eventually they're going to start acting out those fantasies because the fantasies aren't doing it anymore. Now they right. need the real deal. Yeah. 
And it's time that the court systems take this shit seriously. Like, why do I have to wait for something horrible to happen to me if all the signs are leading to this big event? Why? What is going on here? Yeah. Take, for example, the Parkland shooting down in Florida, where you are. There were a number of people who contacted the local authorities, the state authorities, and the federal authorities. They all knew that this guy, Cruz, was was having some issues, mental health issues. And, you know, they took him in for a few days. That's what the laws have on the books, is that you cannot hold somebody involuntarily beyond, sometimes it's three days, seven days, ten days. That is not enough time to address severe mental health problems. Could you imagine, let's translate this over into Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease. These are incurable diseases, just like schizophrenia, sometimes severe manic depression. These are, these are something organically wrong with the brain. And if you were to treat Alzheimer's patients that way, well, we'll, we'll treat you for, for three, seven, 10 days, and then you're out on your own. That would be considered malpractice, basically. Why is it we are not doing this with the mentally ill, with the severely mentally ill? I'm not talking about somebody who battles with depression from time to time. I'm talking about somebody who believes that God has called them on a special mission to wipe out people, to murder people, and that they do seem to get perverse pleasure out of causing damage. There are such people who live and exist, you know, Ted Bundy, um, you know, the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. You know, these are people you cannot reason with them. There is something organically wrong in their brain. And I mean, they've actually done MRI scans on the the severely mentally ill people with schizophrenia, for example. And I'm not trying to castigate anybody with schizophrenia into this. Like not every schizophrenic is a mass murderer. Okay. But when you do have people expressing really disturbing thoughts, when you have them acting out on some of those thoughts in very destructive ways toward themselves or toward other people, and usually, unfortunately, it's toward other people, um, they have actually done brain scans on these people, and they find that there is something organically wrong with the functioning of the brain, where the centers are for empathy and compassion for emotional expression is not normal. And so we are talking about an actual condition, you know, and you can go into, well, you know, why were they this way? Is it, is again, nature versus nurture and all this stuff. And I'm sure it all factors in there, you know, Um, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, anything like that. We need to really have the courts, the legislators need to say, we need to bring back sane mental health commitment laws for long-term or permanent commitment for people who simply are not capable of holding down jobs. And many of them are getting government benefits anyway. We'll put them in a, a mental health facility where they can receive some of the treatment they need. Are they going to be easy patients? No, but there are ways we have, you know, I've heard this, the whole thing. Oh, there were really bad mental hospitals. And you know what there were, there are really bad nursing homes right now. And there are really bad hospitals out there. What do we shut them all down? No, we take steps to improve them. And that's what we need to do. We need to to work hand in hand with private mental health facility companies, something where they are state monitored, privately managed, and again, state monitored, because you don't want the cruelties that happen. Even in our nursing homes today, I've spoken with, uh, it was last year, this this past year, um, two sisters uh, approached me at one of the book selling festivals that I was involved with. And they have an elderly mother that they have been trying to get adequate care for. She's in a nursing home, but the nursing home has had many, many complaints against it. They've they've used so much of their their time and money with attorneys trying to get something done. The courts are not cooperating. The courts just don't care. And, And they're trying to get better care for their mother, and they just cannot do it. That's a nursing home. So, I mean... It is a a systemic issue that we have with our medical field, whether it's for treatment of the elderly with dementia and um, and Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease. You will hear some really bad stories from family members um, about they wish they could get better care for them. Um, I'm always one to advocate. If you're able to be in the hospital or visit frequently with um, your loved one in a nursing home, first of all, do it at 
various times and hours of the day. And because if they think you're coming, then they'll they'll be on their best behavior. The staff will. I've been hearing this. I, I mean, I'm, this is something I've been hearing from like social workers and, and other people. It's like, you've got to make sure you're showing up at unexpected times. So you're not seeing them sitting in there in their fecal matter, you know, that they're being attended to and, and an advocate for your loved ones. I am always saying that um, because I, you know, I, I, there are horror stories out there. So take that then and translate to the health system, you know? I mean, yeah. There were bad hospitals, mental health hospitals, both state and private. I go into the history of why that was dismantled. And it really actually started, everybody blames Ronald Reagan. It was actually the Kennedy administration because JFK had a sister who was mentally disabled and they had tried private treatments. They were wealthy enough. They could try private treatments and everything else and nothing really worked. She had something she was born with that she was never mentally capable of of functioning, really. He wanted to privatize the mental health system, and he wanted to make it more compassionate. Unfortunately, you had certain groups then jump on the bandwagon with that to say, well, you know, they're mentally ill because they're in these horrible facilities. We need to just set them loose, set them free, and they'll be good. They'll take their medicines and everything else. You know, the ACLU did play a role in some of that by saying these people have rights. Well, you know, I'd like to see ACLU lawyers open up their homes to the severely mentally ill and see how well that goes for them. It was it was from one extreme literally to the other. And I'll give you an example that I've mentioned um, in my book. There was a mental health facility, state-run mental health facility in my husband's hometown in Connecticut. And when the order came down by convincing legislators, both parties, oh, it's going to save us so much money to shut these mental state mental hospitals down. Going to save us so much money. Uh, soon after they closed this one mental hospital, they their town used to have this great big, it was a sales festival type of thing um, on their Main Street Boulevard, big wide street. It was a big event. A lot of people came for even you know outside of the town because they, it was good sales and everything else. In broad daylight, this little girl was stabbed to death as she stood next to her mother by someone who had been recently thrown onto the streets because they shut down the state mental hospital. He was severely schizophrenic. He had a, had a history of violent outbursts. They put him out on the streets. And, oh, well, if you need anything, just go to the community health center. And while those community health centers, you know, they don't do anything. And you couple that with the fact that the commitment laws themselves had to be chucked out to where, well, we can only involuntarily hold people for three days, seven days, 10 days, you know, varies from state to state. And so this little girl lost her life as she stood next to her mother while this guy stabbed her to death um, in broad daylight. And, and That's been- crazy. It is tragic and it's preventable. It is preventable. And um, right at that moment, honestly, the legislator said, we're going back into session. We can't have this happen again. But nope, they didn't do that because you want to save money. Well, and think about how much in terms of money, you're just going to think money alone. Look at how much it costs. San Francisco, just one city. Look at how much it costs them to clean up their streets. And I'd like to know where those environmentalists are with all that fecal matter and urine and drug paraphernalia and the drugs themselves washing into San Francisco Bay. I'd like to know where are they? They should be screaming up a storm because this is raw sewage being put down into the bay by all these people where you have to pay these people to clean these streets. You want to talk about the lives lost. You want to talk about all of these problems and how much, and again, Businesses are fleeing places like San Francisco because there's no law and order. And you have all these dangerous people, you know, they can't take care of themselves. They they have mental health problems on top of, you know, drug addictions, severe mental health problems that they were no doubt probably born with. And, and we do know certain drugs will worsen that problem. It really is such a simple solution. And yet, they want to talk about saving money. They have actually expended far more money. Prisons are not a good mental health treatment center, you know? Oh, yeah. No. The, we, 
No, no, yeah. no, no. And that's the nope. thing. They want to lock everybody up and then not even try to rehabilitate them. And then you put them right back on the street. Even if it's like a pedophile, clearly this person has an issue. Mm-hmm. Did anyone try to figure out why? You know, was he a victim himself? You know what I mean? Like most of these people who do these horrific crimes are victims themselves. Yes. Either A, they don't know that it's wrong. B, can't control it. So mm-hmm. why not try to rewire the brain so they don't think this way? So they have coping mechanisms when they want to do these things. We need yeah. to try to help these people, not just release them and say, good luck. And that's exactly what they're doing. I can remember talking to a woman. Um, it was part of a, um, a mental health support group. And she was this one counselor talked about how one of her clients came to her and said, she was a pedophile. And she said, I know as soon as I'm released from here, I'm going to find a child and I'm going to go after them. I wish you would keep me in here longer because I can't control myself. And the state law said, no, no, you, you're free as a bird. You, you, you served your time. Yeah, you paid your debt to society. No, they didn't. They didn't pay their debt to society. They didn't pay their debt to their, their previous victims. And she begged to be kept in prison because she knew herself so well to say, this is a compulsion. I can't give it up. So, I mean, when you have somebody cognizant enough to know it is wrong and it is destructive and yet they cannot stop themselves. They're cognizant enough to know I cannot stop this. I need to be held. So I cannot do this again. We're doing everybody a disservice. Those who are struggling with severe mental health problems, you know, yeah, some of them were victims when they were kids. Um, not all of them, but some of them were. And obviously that's how in a, in a kind of a weird way they they process that. They replay it in their mind, but this time they're the ones in control, I guess, you know. And really it does boil down to, in some cases, like when people do know the difference between right and wrong, there's a difference between pathological and psychopath, where somebody really does believe pink elephants are chasing them down and, you know, red donkeys are, are stomping on their heads. I mean, you know, weird things like that. They really do think there are voices of people, you know, talking to them, but there are other people who are truly devious. Many times they're extremely intelligent and they know the difference between right and wrong. And our legal um, system does recognize that there, there is a difference. The medical professional psychiatric profession recognizes there's a difference between people who are pathological, who lack total empathy and, and those who truly are having delusions and hallucinations. And we need to have facilities set up to help each, each type of person with their particular thing. And, you know, obviously have just like we have in hospitals where we have an ICU or we, we just have them in the regular hospital. They're going to be released soon because their medical condition indicates they don't need intensive care. They need just rehabilitative care. We don't have that. And as I mentioned, you know, prisons do not make good mental hospitals. They do not make good drug rehab places. We have been talking about this to our legislators. They're recognizing the problems. And here's the the issue, though. You can get a really good legislator. And thankfully, here in Tennessee, we do have some good legislators, but not all of them are. And when they're trying to get some really good issues going, you can't stand alone. They can they can kind of campaign with their own legislators, fellow legislators, all they want to. But if they cannot get enough people on board, unfortunately, those laws they or bills that they propose are not going to get anywhere. That's a sad thing. One of the reasons we left Connecticut was it, there was just so much corruption going on. And it was rapidly coming down. It was so expensive to live there. We could not get any rights. We, we actually had victim advocates tell us Given how aggressive your brother's stalking and harassment campaign is, the fact that he's able to get other people to join him in this with, you know, to go after you, you just need to leave the state because you are never going to get justice here. We're actually told that. That's horrible. It is horrible. Absolutely horrible. I had anticipated living the rest of my life in Connecticut. You know, I mean, it's like, okay, well, I guess we're going to have to uproot ourselves and go someplace else. And we are finding actually in this particular area in, in Tennessee, a lot of people who have had to uproot themselves from states that they were born and raised in, had careers in. And they're saying, this is crazy town. This is dangerous and we have to get out. And, you know, it it gets to, boils down to a point of like, 
is there going to reach a point where we have to get out of the country? And, and where do we go? <laughs> and, and it's this is so preventable. That's the thing that just floors me is it's so preventable. And uh, we keep it's interesting because we actually spoke with our governor in person last year. We met him at one of a sort of a little meeting area um, in another town near to where we are. We said, you know, we're from Connecticut and we're starting to see some of the same problems in the courts and in, and just in society in general that we started to see in Connecticut. Because a lot of the New England states, especially in the rural sections, are conservative. I mean, they, they enforce the laws and everything else. And then you get this, this mindset that says, oh, no, we have to throw everybody out on the streets. Let's close down the prisons. Let's get rid of the police. Everybody will behave themselves. Oh, yeah, that, that's a nice utopia. I love to live in such a utopia, but it doesn't exist, okay? I mean, I, I like to be an astrophysicist, too, but that, that's just never going to happen, all right? I mean, you and I had tech problems before we got on. Oh, my God. I don't ever want to go there. Wherever that would be, where there's no prisons, no nothing, uh-uh. You better, you know, Trump wanted a wall. You better wall that that state. <laughs> uh, well, the ir- ironic thing is... I- Portland, I think, where that that one group of uh, protesters, they built a wall. And yet they're protesting building walls. (laughs) You can't have it both ways. (laughs) It was really life-altering to go through this because, and yet we're talking to a lot of people. We know we're not alone. And that's one of the messages I give to other people who are going through this. Because I've gotten emails from people. I've talked to people at conferences um, especially people who have come out of cults, because some of these cults, which part of my title is religious frauds, a lot of these cults and the cult leaders, they are truly psychopaths. They've got issues of power and control, and they're able to get a, a following. Um, and it, that's where it also gets dangerous, because many of these people then harass either former members, and some of them were born into the cult, so, I mean, that's that's a d- kind of a double whammy because they were born in it. It wasn't like they voluntarily joined it. But they get out, and then they also can harass the community. And um, it's like we've got to be able to, to do something with, again, having law and order that you just cannot disrupt people. You know, one of the foundational principles um, that the English philosophers talked about, some of the French philosophers talked about 300 years ago, was the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of property or happiness. And when you start affecting that very rudimentary rights that everybody has, we're born with that. You know, we have a sense of, of what's just. We have a sense of what is best for our self-preservation. When you start attacking that, you're asking for trouble. You know, my degree is in history, political science, And I used to warn my students, you know, when you start to see a country that they'll control how much water you get in your washing machine, but they won't put dangerous people behind bars or get them the mental health treatment that they need, they'll exert all their time and energy controlling the water you need to use in your washing machine but they won't protect your lives and they, they won't protect public safety, then you know there's a problem. And every society that goes down the toilet does this kind of ridiculous stuff. It, it, it's they really do, you know, strain in a gnat and swallow a camel type of thing. They allow certain things to happen that can only hasten the demise of that civilization. I mean, it, that's what happens in every civilization. Um, when you see, well, how do these empires collapse? How do you know, civilizations collapse? It's when you get power lusting people who are not servants of the people, who are not representing their true needs, um, just running roughshod over people's rights to just basically live and do your jobs and, you know, just live, you know? So we we have that going on in our country. I was going to say, I love that analogy, though, that you said, because that is so freaking true. Like, Mm -hmm. you want to sit and control the stupidest little shit, (laughs) but you won't like tackled the heavy shit that actually affects lives like how much water you use come on now like what the hell that's not hurting anybody but let's let joe who just murdered his whole family after serving four years in prison let's let him back out you know like what in the fuck (laughs) yeah well and i'll tell you i can tell you story after story and i i actually have this in my book so you know it's not just about me it's about the the whole picture bigger picture 
one of the previous victim advocates who was basically driven out of his job by the district or state's attorneys they have in Connecticut. Before he left his job, um, I was working with him and he said, you know, your situation, as bad as it is, isn't as bad as what other people are going through. He said, I, you know, I'm not trying to minimize what you, you are going through. But he said, for instance, I can't tell you how many times I've had assault rape victims call me and say the courts were supposed to notify me when this person, if he was going to have early release or when he was going to be released on schedule. He's standing right outside my door. I've called the police. They're not coming. I don't know what to do. She's calling the state victim advocate with his office up in Hartford, Connecticut. Okay. And they're calling from all other different state, you know, points. I mean, yeah, I know Connecticut's a small state, but still, you know, and they're calling and say, I've dialed 911. And they're not coming. I kept dialing them. I kept calling them. And this person sitting right out there, and he's mocking me. He's laughing. Oh my he's either off my property on the sidewalk or he's like standing on my property and I don't know what to do. My advice is get a gun. Yeah. And yes. this is one of the other reasons why we left because we were told by attorneys, if your brother comes on your property, you can't shoot him on your property. Even given the long history, unless he's coming after you with a knife and even then you're going to have to face a trial. And they'd actually joke, if you, you, know, if you have to shoot and kill somebody to try to protect yourself, you need to drag them into your house to make it look like you did it there. <laughs> Stupid. I mean, we were told that even by state troopers. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. This is somebody who has proven to be a verified danger. He has a record of assaulting women, his own ex-wife and female neighbor. Um, you know, and he's making all these, these horrible threats to do damage to us. He's getting his cult followers to do damage, you know, and harassing us and all. And, and it's like, you've got to be kidding me. And so we came to a state where, in fact, we've had um, some of the law enforcement here say, we know the history. You've told us the history of this. Even if you're in public somewhere, you're in like, you know, the parking lot, some business, and you see your brother coming after him, you, you know, you have your pistol on you. You can shoot and kill him there because, or at least wound him. You can defend yourself because there's a history. We know it. The courts will acknowledge that history. I couldn't get that in Connecticut. So, you know, there are some states that, again, we are getting an influx of people from all over and troubled states. And, you know, in our state in Connecticut, it was both Republicans and Democrats. It, you know, and I have to say, even in Tennessee, there are it's predominantly Republican led, but there are some Republicans who are simply clueless. They don't get it. They're not aware that this is a problem that's going to affect you, too, bud. You know, and, and it's, you better start dealing with reality here. And I don't care if you have an R behind your name or a D behind your name. You better start dealing with this reality. So, Yeah. I don't understand how anyone cannot be aware at this point. Like the world has just opened up into like this massive fucking toilet and little by little we are swirling down it. And it's like, how would you live under a rock? How, how do you not see that we need reform? And something I also talk about a lot on my podcast is I think when a law, a very important law, whether it's stalking domestic abuse all that is passed. Obviously, it's passed for a reason. Mm -hmm. Something happened in that state. It should go to all states. Because why? If something happened, let's say in Maine, and you know they have this law passed, so it can't happen anymore. Why in Virginia do I have to wait for it to happen to me? Why exactly. can't we get that law there? Yeah, it's and about not unifying all of us, so we're all protected. Exactly. There are federal stalking laws, but good luck getting those laws enforced. I mean, again, we were told by assistant U.S. attorneys in Georgia, where my brother lives, and in Connecticut, yeah, he's breaking the law. We're not going to put out the money to enforce the law. There are bigger crimes out there. It's like, well, how big does it have to get before you enforce the law? And, you know, I mean, this is only encouraging him. You know, he was told by the FBI to stop mm -hmm. certain crimes that he was committing, cyber crimes, hacking, stalking, the whole nine yards. He was told to stop. Told to stop. That's like saying to a bank robber, you know, yes, we acknowledge you've robbed so many banks, but we're just going to tell you to stop robbing banks. 
<laughs> yeah, that'll work. You know, I mean, it's crazy. And, and, you know, it really does too. We have a system set up in our U.S. Constitution. Love it or hate it. But we have a system that's written down in a written document of balance of power that no particular branch of government, the executive, the legislative, or the judicial is supposed to have more power than the others. They're supposed to have the checks and balances so that there's mutual accountability among all three branches. Every state is set up that way. And yet the judiciary, I'll give you an example. Uh, Under a Republican governor in Connecticut, Um, And it doesn't matter whether it was a Democrat or Republican, but I want to make sure that people understand this goes beyond party lines. Um, There are certain ideologies which you will find more prevalently in one versus the other. But regardless, in the practical day to day living that we all have to go through, when you get your your government officials not representing the needs of the people, there's a problem. I don't care what letter they have behind their names anyway. Under this governor, who happened to be a Republican, a law was passed. The legislature passed it. Anybody who sexually assaulted a child age 13 or younger automatically, no question about it, would get a minimum of 25 years. Bam. My husband and I saw that on the news. We turned to each other and said, yeah, right. When any case comes before a judge, the judge will use what they call discretionary powers. And it, and sure enough, within, um, it was a short period of time, this guy was arrested. He had been raping this girl since she was little. She was under the age 13. And when the conviction came down, he got less than 25 years. After the law was passed, that is the judge breaking the law. We actually sat down and, and with our situation, we sat down with a Republican governor with her legal aides and went through our situation and other situations we brought up. And we said, why are these judges, why are these district attorneys, states attorneys not being held accountable for not enforcing laws? The legislature signs, the judge signs into law or the, um, the governor signs into law. The legislature goes through this. They, they, they manufacture the bill. They write it up. They amend it. They get it going. They pass it. It goes to the governor. The governor signs it. And yet the judges don't enforce the law. That's breaking the law. And all they would say is, well, you know, right. that's the way it happened. We're frustrated too. And it's like, you know, if you're not, go beyond being frustrated. Okay. You've got the constitutional power to hold these judges accountable. It's called impeachment. You, the governor appointed these judges. The, ju- the governor can unappoint them. The legislature can unappoint them. Just bring them through the impeachment process. There are so many cases out there that they have not handled well. You need to do this. You need this is checks and balances. And they're not doing it. We're still working with here in the new state, Tennessee, been here 10 years. We're still working with our legislators to say, yes, there are some good judges out there. And there are, thankfully. But there are some real rogue ones, too, who are doing quite literally, whatever the hell they feel like doing because they woke up in a bad mood or the traffic was bad and money. Now you think about this, whether it's a civil court or a criminal court, if you allow more crime to happen, well, there's this glut of attorneys who need jobs, right? So you open up more judge positions, okay? And same thing with civil court. If you allow ape crap crazy people to go in there without an attorney and file all these crazy lawsuits against this, that, and the other person, you are going to need more judges. It's guaranteed job security. Whether it's on the criminal court case, you keep throwing criminals out on the streets and it really does boil down to money. It really does. It boils down to, we know for a fact there's a glut of attorneys out there. They need jobs. So, yeah. And and, I also think some of them get paid off. You know what I mean? Like, I'll give you X amount if you do this. And mm-hmm. then the justice goes out the window. They're yeah. just thinking of payday. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and that's unfortunate because I'm sorry, lives don't have a value. Exactly. A life should never have a value. Yeah. It's priceless. And nobody should have to live in fear. Nobody should ever be touched or 
have to do something they don't want to do that is wrong. Yeah. And it's just, it's injustice for everybody. There's so many times, like, I'll watch crime shows and the judge will give something so lenient. And when that person comes out, they reoffend. And every time I always say to myself, that judge should be held accountable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they're not. Um, I'll give you an example from one of the attorneys we had. And um, he freely admits, you know, he, he does get counseling because he says some of my cases are just so emotionally damaging. They're so upsetting to him. And he says, I've got to find a way to cope with this. He was telling us that um, the situation, his client was a woman and her offender had really beaten her up, everything else. He was in jail and the opportunity came up for early release. And they, he argued strenuously before the judge, please do not let this guy out. He's making death threats in prison against this woman, my client. The client herself testified, please judge, please do not let him out. He is promising to kill me as soon as he gets out. I have nowhere to go. I need help. Please do not have him released. The judge ignored her, ignored this attorney, and released him. And guess what happened? She was killed that very day that he was released. And he suffered with that. Oh, my God. And do you think that judge is going to be held accountable? No. Um, you know, and this is part That's of That's not right. It's it's evil. That I mean, there is true evil that exists in this world, and that's it. That's one of the that that is evil for a judge to do that. And you know, this attorney, he, he just he said, that, you know, there's so many days he just feels like throwing in the towel, but he's like, I can't. I can't. I've got to be the one who advocates for these people. You know, and um, thank God there are good there are good attorneys and there are good judges. But there are those who, again, I think in some cases, too, these judges are more afraid of the criminals than they are, of course, of any ramifications. Because, again, it, it's so hard to get a judge disbarred. It's so hard to get an attorney <laughs> disbarred. And it, it, I think there's, there's a, a whole range of issues that go into why are these judges not doing their jobs? And we've heard from judges themselves who say, I'm also, I'm of the old school. If somebody breaks the law, it's not my duty to interpret the law. It's my duty to uphold the law. That's my sworn duty is to uphold the law. And if the law says I have to sentence them to 25 years, then I have to do that. I can't say, well, no, I'm a law unto myself. I can do whatever I feel like doing. Because that's it. And again, they have an idea of integrity, of, of respecting the court system. But unfortunately, we're getting far too many. I mean, you, know, you have to trace it back to the law schools. You know, what are they teaching them in law school? That they're justifying this kind of behavior, that they're actually, in a sense, promoting. And really, they are. They're promoting this. And to what end? I, I've heard, like, for example, you take a place like Chicago. You know, one of the nicknames now for Chicago is Chirac, because there are sometimes more people being killed off daily in Chicago than in Iraq. You know, And I mean, why are they turning this country into this hellhole of chaos? And I, you know, I've dealt with this in political ideology. There are some people who think in order for you to create a utopia, you have to create chaos and destroy the existing order of things as it is. And that really does. I, I've talked with people who really believe that, who say, oh, yeah, I'm all for like making chaos and, and you know, opening up all the prison doors, closing down the prisons and letting criminals run free because that will create chaos. And then the government can step in there and say, oh, we'll save you as long as you do this, that and the other thing. You know, we're the government. We can save you. We know what's best for you. And it's like, you know what? That has never worked well in human history. I don't care what you call it. You can call it Marxism. You can call it socialism. You can call it communism. You can call it Robespierreism. You can call it, you know, the Babylonian Empire, whatever. When you get totalitarian control, which the government tells you, I know what's best for you. That's why our constitution starts off with we, the people. 
our founders never intended for government to have that much control. They came out of a government that was violating their rights. We were British citizens at one point. We said, no, we're putting our foot down. We're not allowing you to violate our most basic God-given rights. We're not going to allow you to do that. And that's, I mean, I, I sometimes worry, are we at that point where vigilantism is going to take hold and it's just going to be a hellhole in this country? And, and, you know, one of the things that our state and other states are aiming for is what is called a reassertion of the constitutional rights where it, they're calling for state sovereignty. Now, I want to make clear to your listeners, I'm not calling for some of these what they call sovereign states where these people are almost like in a cult and they say, well, you know, we don't need driver's licenses. We don't need permits. We don't need to do anything. We don't need to stop at stop signs because we're a sovereign nation. It's not that same thing. We're talking about legislators. Yeah, they, they exist. They exist. We're talking about, again, asserting our constitutional rights to say, you know what, federal government, you're overstepping your bounds. We have certain laws here. We have the Constitution. We have, if you don't like something, amend the Constitution. Put an amendment in, see if it flies, okay? But there are so many regulations for example, federal funds that come with all these strings attached of everything you have to do in order to get those federal funds. And they have nothing to do with the initial program for which you're getting those funds. So, you know, it, these are good things that I think some of our legislators are, are starting to, to push. And again, in meeting with our governor, he said to us, I'm hearing this from a lot of people from other states. It's like, you can't let happen to Tennessee what we escape from in California or Connecticut or New York. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, eventually we just, we have to take a stand. And I think more and more people are starting to do that. More and more people are sick of this bullshit. They're sick of predators having more rights than the victims. You know what I yep. mean? Like there's no cool. reason for it and we're tired of it and people are raising their voices now. We want to be heard. We want changes. It's just not changing as quickly as we want in the way that it should be. Yeah. And I'm, I'm honestly hoping for a peaceful re resolution to all of this because human history is littered with violent revolutions when people's rights are violated. And I'm, I'm very much concerned. Right. I, I've heard people talking about, oh, I'm ready to take up arms and do this and another civil war and blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, you realize we lost more people in the American Civil War than we lost in all of our other wars combined. Do you really want that? Um, I'm, I'm really hoping and praying we get some peaceful resolution to this where the states will simply assert their rights and, and bare minimum declare autonomy from the federal government to say, nope, we've got it handled here. We don't need your federal funds for this. You know what? We, we got it handled. And uh, yeah, there's just too much craziness going on and people are getting really angry. Um, when I used to teach my classes, I'd say, you know, hungry people and people who have their rights violated make for very angry people. When you deny people their most essential services, whether it's food, whether it's, again, ability to live peacefully and quietly on their own land on their own property, in their own towns, in their own communities. When you violate that most basic human right, I don't care what country you're from, it's a basic human right to live in safety and security. When you violate that, you're asking for trouble. Yeah, people only are going to allow themselves to be beaten down so many times. Government is getting into things that they have absolutely no right to. Like, how can you tell a person that if they want to be a man, a woman, whatever, that they can't or they can't love whoever? How are you going to tell somebody who's been raped or has incest by their father that now they have to have this child? Like, you do not have the right to do this shit. Like, these are people's rights. And the government is just getting in the way of so many rights that people should have. They're yeah, concentrating I, on the wrong things. And I know, you know, there are a lot of ethical and, and issues that go into all of that. And there are going to be disagreements across the board. We've got to find a way to say, yes, we can disagree, but we shouldn't be blowing ourselves apart with this um, and riots and everything else. You know, you, you talk to any business owners and they're talking about whether they're just the little mom and pop 
or whether they're, you know, part of like, you know, big corporations. And they're having out of necessity to pull out of different regions in our, our country. You know, that's the kind of thing that they would do if there was like a foreign country where they had a business and, you know, went into civil upheaval. They would pull out, you know. Now you're having to happen where these businesses are having to shut down within our country. The alarm bells are going off and we need to address these problems. My greatest fear is we are headed toward something cataclysmic. And of course, we've got Russia and China in the wings, just waiting. They've got military exercises with their battleships and subs going on in the Atlantic and the Pacific. You know, and it's part of, again, my own background with and the classes that I taught. And what I was telling people is foreign countries will always look for the weaknesses within a country. And that's what they use to help invade and take over that country. And we know that, you know, China's buying up our farmland. What do you need farmland for? Oh, for man-made famines. <laughs> you know, you've got some people who think we should be eating bug protein. Hey, you know what? You want to eat bug protein? Have a great time. Okay. But don't deny me my occasional steak. I have steak maybe like three or four times a year. Okay. It's not something where I'm chowing it down every single day. Okay. It's so ridiculous what they go, the extents to which they go. And, and it really is ridiculous. And it's dangerous. It's like, don't you dare control our food supply. Like I said, hungry people make for angry people. If you're not meeting your society's basic needs of, of food, shelter, safety, and security, you're going to have trouble on your hands. And, and we are seeing that. Well, I think, survival. Yeah. It's, and it goes beyond a constitution. It goes beyond a written constitution. We have it written in our hearts that we have a basic human right to, to exist, to try to make our, a living for ourselves, to try to live in, in peace and safety, and to have, you know, again, no interruptions in our own food, whether we grow it ourselves or whatever. We have a, a number of cattle ranchers around this area. And they're raising cattle because they are concerned about federal regulations cracking down on the supply of food. We have people raising you know, food here because they are concerned about the government or private entities, whether it's foreign entities or whether it's domestic entities controlling the food supply. And so I'm glad that they are, are doing that. I don't know if it's going to be enough, you know, but, you know, growing soybeans, growing corn, growing a whole bunch of other things. You know, we have our own home little little garden and stuff. And it's nice when you, you can prepare a plate at night, you know, a nice little salad and say, all of this came from my garden. I grew this. This is mine. There's some real good satisfaction that comes out of doing that. You know, all the peppers that were there and the tomatoes and the lettuce and, you know, cucumbers, all of that. It, you know, there's a great satisfaction that comes from growing your own food. So, um, and growing it from oh, seed. Oh, absolutely. And you know where it came yeah. from. It's not from one of those overgrown farms and all that <laughs> shit, right? There's no pesticides and there's nothing added to it to make it bigger. And, like, yeah. I know. It just exists. It, it does. And, you know, I, I'm trying to be careful with the types of seeds that I order and everything else. And, um, you know, encouraging things like uh, growing different types of flowers that are good for, for bees, marigolds, things like that. Um, you know, sunflowers, any type of flower that will help with that. And that is just good stewardship of our planet. That isn't something where, oh, yes, it's a political thing. I'm doing this. No, this has been doing this is what civilization has been practicing for, you know, centuries and centuries is just good stewardship of the land. You need your bees, you need your good insects, you know, they'll actually, sometimes they'll take care of the bad insects, you know? So yeah, you just go out there and you just grow your own stuff. And, you know, in case of uh, the cattle farmers around here, growing your own cows, we've gotten uh, locally grown beef. We're checking to make sure they're not putting all kinds of weird hormones in it or any kind of weird things in it to, to make sure, you know, it's good beef. We're trying to support our local economy. And I think that's really where it boils down to where we do need to support our own local communities and everything else. You know, I think that will help. I think, again, kind of going full circle with this, even as families can sometimes disintegrate, and that's the sad, tragic thing. We do have a lot of disintegrating families for a variety of reasons. Our communities are reflecting that. You know, I've taught in schools. Um, I'm retired now. 
but I still hear periodically from different you know teachers who are still in the profession. And then it's gotten tougher because as a teacher, you're not just teaching. You're meeting the emotional needs of these kids. I used to call it my Monday morning therapy session. These kids would come in from the weekend. They'd had a horrible time with their parents or their grandparents, you know, whoever the guardian is. Or, you know, they get on Facebook and just rip each other to shreds, which it's like, get off that thing. If that's what you're going to be using it for, get off it. Okay. There's a whole world out there. And you have to address these needs. You can't just say, okay, oh, crack open your books, page 394 and all, all that stuff. It's like, if they're coming in with a mess, you have to deal with that mess. It's no different than if a kid came in and puked on your floor. You got to deal with it. You can't just like, you know, step over it and still keep writing on the chalkboard or whatever. You, you've got to deal with it. And that's one of the things that as teachers, more and more having to deal with, why is my student falling asleep? Why is my student crying at their desk? Why is my student raising their voice at me and throwing a tantrum when it's like, wow, where'd that come from? You know, you've got to address all of these things and it's taxing. I give it to a lot of the teachers out there who are really trying to do a good job. And and you can understand why now there's a shortage of teachers. You know, when I first started off in getting my degree and getting involved in education back in the 80s, I mean, it was like there were so many teachers out there. It was hard to find anything in any kind of educational field, not just in schools, but in anything. You know, it's, I worked on the sub base in the uh, Navy campus. So I was giving tests to people so they could get their college degrees and stuff, college credits and things like that. It was it was a tough field to get into at that time. And now they're begging people for jobs because again, people, it's hard to put up with the psychological damage that we see. I mean, it was back then too, but it's it just seems to be a bit more now. And a lot of that then bleeds over into, you know, if you're trying to get these kids and, and I, I spoke to a principal about this earlier this year and she said, we're trying to get these kids who come from dysfunctional families, we're trying to get them to realize the pride that comes from working at a job in a tech field that your society, that com- your community needs you to do, whether it's plumbing, electrical work, or whatever. Well, think about it. I mean, yeah, those jobs, they can bring in some good money. Yet you have to show up every day, all that. But some of these families, they make more money selling drugs or producing drugs than they would working an honest job that benefits society, that doesn't potentially kill somebody. And it, it's sad. How do you then right. create a value system in that child to say, that's not going to work in the long run? You know, you're going to end up in jail. You're not going to be able to get a job. It, it's a very bad cycle to try to break with these families where they watch their father and their grandfather. I mean, this goes well beyond moonshine. This is, we're talking about fentanyl we're talking about meth and everything else and they watch the money come pouring in and you know yeah oh they'll serve a little bit of time losing money exactly they'll watch oh yeah they served a couple of years in prison and they're back out again making meth you know selling fentanyl that kind of thing and it, it is really it's hard to break through to that to these kids to say you're the one who has to say no it stops with me I can't contribute to this breakdown of society because it's not just about you. It's not just about your parents or your grandparents. This is about all of society. And it starts with you as an individual saying, no, I will find a better way. You know, and that's really hard to do. Money talks. Absolutely. No, I completely agree with you. And that's, that's the area we really, we got to start heading towards because this shit ain't working. I, I put my book out as, as a help to people. Uh, yes, I have to go through the whole history of, you know, why I wrote the book, what happened and everything else. But, uh, you know, especially in my last chapter, I deal with solutions. What can we all do no matter where we are? And I do, you know, basically encourage people in podcasts. If you're in a state where they're not listening to you, then you don't owe them your tax dollars. Get out. Go to another state where you have at least a chance, a better chance of your legislators actually listening to you, you know, because this is not going to work well. You, we have to have a voice. We have to make our voices heard and, and recognize what it will take to do that. Recognize also what is happening in the world around us. I, I put in my book, everything we've experienced is a microcosm of what we see going on in the bigger part of the country where people are having crimes committed against them and they can't get it to stop. 
you know, and it, it's sad. Very yeah. sad and frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Where can people buy your book? Uh, they can get it on Amazon, Walmart.com. They could, they can, yeah. If they go to my website, www.fightingforjusticebook.com, they will see a link there that takes them directly to Amazon, or they can just get on Amazon and look up my book. There are other books with the title Fighting for Justice, but they can use my name, Fighting for Justice, Paulette J. Buchanan, and they will find my book. It's on Kindle. It's in I'll put the link in the show notes too. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a real of course yeah, talking with you, and I'm really glad you are also concerned about these issues and making this um, this information available to people because people need to like be stirred up to say, you know what, we need to do something to stop this. Only way it's going to is if we stick together, we make our voices heard, and we don't back down. Power numbers. Absolutely, and that's what we're here for. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. This was a pleasure. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. I do appreciate your time and your work. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining me this week. If any of my episodes resonate with you, would you please make sure that you reach out to me? It's very important that I know the work that I'm doing is actually beneficial. And if you just find good value in these, please make sure that you subscribe, you're rating and you're reviewing. Share it with your friends especially if you know somebody could actually use this information in their own life. That's what these are here for. Keep finding strength. Until next time.